Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is Half an Hour on your radio where we talk about Everything. The science of everything. Yes. My name's Stu and on the show this week I am going to be talking to uh, Dr. Amelia Johnston who has been doing some work on cancer. You know, everyone thinks they're trying to find the cure for cancer. Interesting thing is when people get cancer they often are affected by a wasting sickness that comes along with cancer and Amelia Johnson has been working on this wasting uh, sickness and they've figured out the genetic component of the sickness and which may lead to a way to reverse it. Manisha what have you got for us this week? Hi um, today I'll be talking about the exciting new discovery in the paleoanthropology world. The name which is? The name is Naledi. Homo Naledi. Homo Naledi is a new possible human ancestor discovered or uncovered or on Earth. This is the one that's that they found through spelunking, right? What's spelunking? They went deep, deep. Yeah, down yeah, yeah. Into the shoot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, that's it. Mm. And Claire. Uh, well, today I'm actually talking to Professor Andy Greentree, who is a professor of quantum. Uh, physics at RMIT University, and um, he does um, some work uh, designing and looking at um, very, very tiny nanotechnology and uh, materials to look into living systems and um, come up with diagnostic tools. Cool. Yeah, with very, very small particles. Well, a very human, human-centered episode this mm. week. Uh, so stay tuned. On the phone today, I have Amelia Johnston from La Trobe University. Amelia, could you just please tell me what you do at La Trobe and, and the department you work in and what, what sort of research you're involved with? Sure. So we're from La Trobe University, as you said. Uh, we're part of the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science and we're within the Department for Biochemistry and Genetics and we're researchers. I am a postdoctoral fellow. Okay, so your research is um, to do with cancer, but you, you're not really looking for the, uh, the holy grail of the cure for cancer. So our project actually, interestingly, began, we were interested in tumours and we were interested in studying you know, how they form um, to potentially develop anti-tumour reagents. What we found is we, we made a discovery with our molecule that we work with that when we expressed it on the surface of tumour cells, that it was actually able, able to initiate a condition that's called cachexia, which is basically a, a weight loss and a wasting disease that, that's often seen in cancer, and in particular in the later stages of cancer. So this, this, um, this condition is sort of a result of the cancer? Cachexia for a long time has been seen, or the weight loss, that's associated with cancer has just been seen as part of uh, having the cancer present. I think more recently it's becoming a bit better understood that it is a, almost a separate condition that's obviously caused because of the presence of a cancer, but certainly our work you know, has shown that it's potentially a symptom that we can switch off. So, so people with cancer 
are having this sort of wasting disease, so they, they lose a lot of weight. Do they lose muscle tone and stuff as well? Yeah, so the, the symptoms of cachexia, uh, the weight loss is predominantly in the form of muscle wasting, uh, also the loss of adipose tissue, so your uh, fat uh, stores. Uh, there's other symptoms like changes to appetite signalling uh, and also other metabolic changes within the body. But the the ma- major problem being the muscle wasting is this is a has a major effect on the quality of life for anyone suffering from cachexia. Uh, it means they lose their strength, they lose uh, the ability to, to undertake normal daily tasks, and it also means that it makes them less uh, less able to tolerate the cancer treatments themselves. And so often this is a point where cancer treatment might be ceased because the patient's simply too weak to continue treatment. Right. So, so what have you, through your research, what have you found out about how it works and, and potentially how you can uh, switch it off and, and, I guess, possibly reverse it? What we found is a molecule uh, that's called FN14. It's a small molecule that's often, uh, so it's not normally uh, present in the body. It has some beneficial roles in its normal duty. And it's been known for quite some time to be often expressed or present in cancers. What we found is when we expressed it on tumours in preclinical models, that it was able to actually trigger this disease. We were able to... So we generated a, a, what's called an antibody, and we use this much like you'd use a therapy. We use this in our preclinical models, and we're able to show that we could completely block the onset of weight loss. When, you know, we then went on to, to study what happens if we administer after the, the onset of the weight loss, and we were able to show that we could actually reverse the muscle wasting and, and the fat loss that had already occurred. So this was a pretty exciting finding for us. When did the project actually start? So the project itself has been running for about eight years. Uh, we made the original discovery around seven years ago, and so it's been a long process to get to a point where we could publish the work. The ongoing work in the lab, what, what are you actually up to currently? Sure, so we've got a couple of different areas that we're researching at the moment. Uh, I guess our deve- the development of the antibody for use in humans, and that's happening uh, in collaboration with our colleagues at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. And in the lab here, we're looking to further our understanding of how our molecule, FN14, actually triggers, you know, what are the pathways that are involved downstream of its activation uh, that are actually causing all of the symptoms. So ultimately, I guess, the outcome of your research is to effectively prolong the life of cancer patients so that they can undergo further treatment that will treat the actual cancer itself. Is that what the outcome will be in the end? Yeah, that's pretty right. Um, What would be good, I'll I'll give you some statistics just to give you an idea of, um, you know, the significance of this condition. It's estimated uh, up to 80% of cancer patients will actually suffer from cachexia. And this depends on the type of cancer uh, itself. So the more aggressive cancers like pancreatic cancer, stomach cancers, they're quite a high incidence. And we know that up to it's 25 to 30% of cancer-related are actually attributed to the presence of cachexia. So we, what we would like to think is if we can develop an antibody that will successfully uh, be used in humans, that we could 
you know, only increase their quality of life in those later stages of cancer, but also be able to, you know, give back a patient their strength and their ability to continue the other cancer treatments. Um, so, you know, giving them a better chance to fight the cancer themselves. It sounds like a pretty major breakthrough and uh, you must be quite relieved to finally be able to uh, tell people about it and uh, publish your results. Certainly it's been a long long process from discovery to the point uh, we're at today. We're very excited. It's not only us working on the project, it's been a huge collaborative project over the years. We've had people from not only from La Trobe University, we've got collaborators at Melbourne University, uh, Professor Gordon Lynch and Dr Kate Murphy, We've got uh, a suite of international collaborators as well, so it's been a really exciting time for us to see the work now out in the scientific community. Well, fantastic, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing more about your um, human trials when you finally get to that point. Thank you, Amelia Johnston, for joining us on Lost in Science. Thanks so much for having us and for your interest in our research. Okay, so this tale begins two years ago. A couple of cavers were exploring the Rising Star Cave in South Africa when they saw something exciting and remarkable. Through the cracks in the limestone, they saw bones, lots and lots of bones. They got in touch with Lee Berger, a paleoanthropologist and professor at the University of Witwatersands in Johannesburg. He's one of the few paleoanthropologists that believes that the origin of human evolution lies in South Africa. Many of his colleagues discredit the idea, since most of the groundbreaking discoveries in paleoanthropology have come from Eastern Africa. For example, the discovery of Homo habilis in Tanzania and then later again in Kenya. It's believed that habilis, a species that is credited with first using stone tools, may be the stepping stone between ape-like Australopithecus um, and the more modern human-like Homo species. Uh, one of the most famous Australopithecus discoveries um, is the skeleton nicknamed Lucy. Lucy was discovered in 1974 in Ethiopia, and she's dated to originate around 3 million years ago, whereas Habilis is dated to originate approximately 2 million years ago, the same time that Homo is expected to diverge from Australopithecus. But this didn't sit right with Berger, who remained unconvinced that Homo, that Homo habilis was the right connection. He wasn't sure that habilis was actually evolved enough to be a Homo species. He argued that the features of habilis were much too primitive and too similar to Australopithecus. He was so sure that there was another, more recent ancestor out there worthy of being recognized as the first Homo species. 
And that's what brings us back to the Rising Star Cave. The entire cavity was littered with bones right there on the surface. That and sounds like a horror movie to me. Doesn't it? It sounds... <laughs> going to the bottom of the cave and it's littered with bones. <laughs> it, they even said that it looked as though somebody had just thrown the bones into the, like down the chute. So that's even more horrifying. They were so confused. They didn't know what to make of this. So they took photos and they showed Lieberger, um, who could, by looking at the photos, just tell that the bones were not from modern humans. The teeth and the jaw bones looked far too primitive, but there was still a really close resemblance. Berger assembled a research team um, and a complete excavation crew led by Marina Elliott from Simon Fraser University in Canada. Um, they started by excavating a one, meter, uh, one square meter plot, and they found more than 400 fossils just on the surface. And as they started digging, um, they digged approximately 15 centimeters into the soil. They found more than 1,500 fossil specimens. Are they like bones? Like bone specimens. Bone specimens. And altogether, um, these uh, bones made up about 15 individuals. So did these scientists have to go in through the cracks as well? Yeah, so the excavation crew, actually when uh, Berger was putting them putting this together, the call-out was for skinny individuals. Skinny scientists. So whoever could fit through this gap. And yeah, it was, so it was actually led are uh, mostly done by a team of six women. The cool. bones uh, ranged in uh, maturity. So we had adults or they had adults, juveniles and infants. And the skeletons were just bizarre because they had these remarkably modern features but they also had these really remarkably primitive features and these they were just new and weird and interesting and no one had ever seen anything like this no it was just such a mix it was such a mix of the modern shapes and the primitive shapes that it just didn't fit and it didn't make sense um but Berger couldn't be sure of this on his own so he assembled a research team of about 60 different scientists, 20 senior scientists, and about 30 um, early career scientists and more. And they spent six weeks just analyzing all the bones and trying to make what they could of it. And it was just confirmed the weirdness of the mixture of primitive features and modern features was so apparent. So what what's what are the primitive features and what are the modern yes? Features? So the skeleton had like a modern skull shape and but the brain case was smaller than than Homo species, and their shoulders were primitive and suggested hanging or climbing activity. But their palms and wrists and thumbs suggested modern tool use, and their long curvy fingers suggested tree climbing again, and. Their legs suggested bipedal movement, and their feet looked identical to modern human feet, but their pelvic bone resembled a primitive skeleton. So Berger and his team, they, they did decide that this was, in fact, a new homo species, and they named it Homo naledi. Uh, naledi is pay- paying homage to the uh, cave in which it was found because it means uh, stars in, in Soto, which is the local language. And so um, Naledi may actually be that link that Berger was looking for between Australopithecus and Homo. Uh, so at the moment, there's a couple major mysteries revolving around these skeletons. First of all, the, n- nobody really knows or they're not sure uh, how old they are or where they fall into the ancestral tree. 
and uh, Berger and his team are currently working on figuring this all out, and they're yet to provide answers. Um, and then the other great mystery is just how did the bones get down there? Um, because of how inaccessible the cavity was and the fact that um, the excavators didn't find any fauna remains or any bones from any other animals. They did find a couple bones from birds, but that's about it. Um, they, there was no carvings in the cavity. There was no tools. So it, there was nothing to suggest that the, um, that the individuals, the Naledis, were actually inhabiting that cavity or the cave at all. Uh, so there's some suggestion that the bones or the people may have been deposited there. And uh, this is interesting because... Uh, before before this discovery, this kind of depositing bodies or funeral-like r- routines and things like that were uh, simply reserved for homo sapiens. So we were thought to be the only ones to practice these kind of behaviors. So it could be interesting and it could be a, a very um, a, a cool tie-in, a cool ritual. Yeah, uh, and that would suggest that um, it was actually a link between the Australopithecus and the, yeah, and yeah. the homo and a bit closer of a relative. A bit, a bit closer to us. Yeah. yeah wow. Hmm. But uh, this idea is really still in its infancy, and there's a lot of work and a lot of exploration to be done. But in any case, it's really an exciting time for Berger and his entire team. A time full of questions and possible answers. So this is really cool. It's interesting that, you know, for years, uh, paleontologists and paleoanthropologists have been trying to get people away from the idea of you know, that human ancestors were cavemen. <laughs> and yet they found them all in a, a cave. cave. Well, we're back to square one, guys. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations to boldly go where no radio has gone before. potential of nanotechnology to develop innovations, solve problems and help us understand about health and living systems in general is seemingly limitless. My guest today, Professor Andy Greentree from RMIT University, knows this better than most people. And as Chief Investigator for the Centre for Nanoscale Biophotonics, a new ARC Centre of Excellence shared in RMIT, Adelaide and Macquarie Universities, He is the perfect person to discuss some of the exciting discoveries that are around the corner. Welcome to Lost in Science, Andy. Thanks, Claire. Now, let's just start with the centre. Can you break down for us what nanoscale biophotonics actually is? Well, we're trying to understand biological systems with light. So if you think about microscopes and Mm -hmm. the way you might have looked at something through through a microscope objective... You'd get a, a small sample and, and the light would come in and you would see that magnified very many times. Well, we want to do the same thing, but we don't want to take um, the sample to the microscope. We want to put the microscope 
inside the sample, inside living, um, living creatures, and find out what's going on at the, uh, the nanoscale. So when we talk about the nanoscale, we're talking about chemical reactions, we're talking about processes that go on at length scales that are, well, 10 to 100 nanometers. So that's that sounds billionth. very small. Oh, yes, it's, it's a billionth of a meter. So if you think about the width of your hair, mm. that's around 50 millionths of a meter. So we're talking about things a thousand times smaller than that. Oh, that is very, very tiny. And putting a microscope that small into a living system. Well, the microscope's always going to be bigger. But mm -hmm. in fact, an even greater challenge is that the size of the light itself might be a hundred times larger than what we're trying to look at. If we can understand what's going on at these small scales, then we can understand things like the origins of certain disease. We can understand molecular processes that give rise to, um, for example, pain and the origins of sensation. Another one of our researchers is very concerned with cardiovascular health. And so we want to understand then what are the microscopic changes and the submicroscopic changes that are occurring. Um, now, when you were talking before a little bit about um, actually putting a microscope into a living system, I mean, that just blows my mind completely. But the one thing that it does bring to my mind is um, that old 60s movie, The Fantastic Voyage, <laughs> that Jules Verne-esque type um, film where physicists shrink down a submarine so it can go um, and explore the body. Uh, is the Centre for Nanoscale Biophotonics just wanting to, to try and find a nanoscale submarine? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I wish. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I will personally go inside. <laughs> uh, but it's we're trying to do the next best thing. Um, so we're looking at new probes that include optical fibre mm -hmm. um, so that we can get very small... Um, very small collection optics. So we have to, when so, you're inside the body, mm. you have to get the photons where you need them. You have to get the light where you need it, and you have to get it out. And yeah. that creates all kinds of all kinds of challenges. Mm. So we absolutely need to use um, new nanomaterials. One of the things that we do a lot of at RMIT, um, particularly with my colleague um, Brant Gibson is we look at designing new fluorescent nanoparticles. So one of the things that we can do is to create um, a small light source. Uh, usually we use nanodiamonds, in fact, so very small diamonds. Cool, they sound very cool. <laughs> oh, they're awesome. Um, and these can be placed into the body. They can be functionalized, so you can add... Uh, interesting groups um, so, that, that, so that they go where you want them to go. And they're also very easy to collect the light from because they turn out to be very bright. Uh, and quite importantly, they're, photo uh, sorry, they're biocompatible. So they're photostable and they're biocompatible. Which um, means that they... So the photostable means that they're bright for a long time. Yep. The biocompatible means that they don't harm the system that they're being introduced to. Very important. It, it is important and... Many of the systems that we would like to use, many of the fluorescent markers we'd like to use, which work very well um, in a in a um, petri dish, in a laboratory, um, we can't put inside living organisms because they will cause damage. Mm. Um, 
One of the other points, actually, I know this is a bit of a change of topics, but while we're on the issue of damage, one of the things that um, I find quite fascinating is that when we talk about light, we normally think that the light itself is not damaging. You know, we're used to microscopes and, and you don't think you do any harm just by looking down a microscope. But in the new imaging techniques that we're looking at here, particularly where we want to find out where a particle is um, to better than the resolution of the light, so really small length scales, um, we have to use a lot of light to the extent that the light itself becomes damaging. Mm. And understanding those effects and limiting their effects is a critical part of our research. Absolutely. Um, now, on a, on a more personal note, I've been fortunate enough to see you present on light and photonics and um, your passion for the subject matter. Uh, can I say it shines through? Oh, it's so <laughs> terrible. Um, have you always had a fascination with light and physics, Andy? Yes, I'd say I have. I've, I think for most of my life I've wanted to be a scientist of some kind and in hindsight it was always going to be physics. Um, light for me, light and colour um, are things that have always fascinated me for as long as I can remember. And in fact much of the, uh, much of the work that I did in my, um, my first job um, after I finished my PhD, uh, was studying how to change uh, change the absorption properties of light, so making them transparent. And I've really been working hard at understanding light and understanding what it means at a quantum level and its interactions, uh, how light interacts with matter. So, Andy, you are the perfect person to present a lecture in the International Year of Light, which 2015, it is the International Year of Light. Um, and I understand that you'll be making a free public lecture at RMIT on the evening of September 30. Um, is that right? Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah. And um, what can people expect from this lecture if they are in Melbourne um, and around for September 30? What can they expect? Well, I'm going to talk about um, uh, some of the activities in the centre. I'm going to have some demonstrations uh, illustrating both the wave-like and the particle-like properties of light um, to try and uh, explore and demonstrate these two seemingly contradictory mm. quantum properties. Um, but the other very important aspect is that um, I want to demonstrate how we need these quantum mechanical processes for the new technologies that we're trying to develop. It really is a wonderful era to be a physicist. It's a wonderful era to be making devices because um, quantum mechanics, we've had it for just over 100 years now. And for the longest time, it was a very philosophical field. It was something that people would argue about but never get anywhere. Mm. Um, now we've got great experiments that prove why we need quantum mechanics and we're building new devices which use quantum mechanics. In the centre, we're building new devices that we hope will one day um, help improve people's quality of life. Uh, but there are also researchers, colleagues of mine, who are building new computers um, and other people who are building new secure systems. Um, but more generally, we think that when we have these new tools, we'll have great new ideas and the, the technologies that come out will be completely unprecedented. And 
fun, of course. And fun, of course. That's fascinating. Well, um, we hope to see you there. You can register for the event online through the RMIT University website. Um, the lecture is called Seeing Into the Body One Photon at a Time. And we will, of course, put a link up on the Lost in Science website. Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. Thank you, Claire. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.